This is Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco at 89.5 FM. It's Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we got a lot to talk about today. There's a lot of news to catch up on. First and foremost, we have to discuss the central question in front of us today. Is the United Nations relevant? This is really important considering we have all these world leaders at the United Nations. Everywhere. Uh, They're from all over the world. They're coming speaking, and descending, speaking. President Trump spoke, and we'll, and we'll discuss that. In a minute. Mahmoud Abbas also delivered the speech there, which I think was his best speech, but my, I have my comments on that. We'll get to that. The uh, Benjamin Netanyahu spoke. The president of Iran spoke. That's right. I mean, you had a lot of very important people, obviously, world leaders there to speak. But I think in terms of putting it into context, we know that Donald Trump in his run-up to his nomination and election as president of the United States, one of his talking points was the U.N. is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. The United Nations is just a club where people come and speak. That's that, right. the, that, the, that the United States pays way too much money. And he's been threatening on numerous occasions, even while he was a candidate and even as president, even tweeting about, you know, maybe the United States should not only just cut back from uh, its funding of the United Nations, but maybe should just pull out altogether and kick the U.N. out. All of this kind of hardcore rhetoric. And it's kind of interesting to understand it in that in that context. His speech, however, I think was universally minus one universally criticized as being one of the most, number one, insulting, inflammatory, over-the-top, non-diplomatic speeches that we've heard from anybody at the United Nations, let alone the president of the United States. Yeah, and then uh, I should also add uh, it was basically silly. If you listen to the speech, it was unsophisticated very unsophisticated you know i thought at least when donald trump is in front of the teleprompter <laughs> he speaks better but you know you're supposed you know you're a, supposedly the world leader of uh, the, the only superpower in the world the free world so the, to speak. The, the free world and you're supposed to deliver a message of hope a message you know talking about for example Issues, important issues like now, like we're facing now, the environment for one thing, we're seeing uh, all the, exactly. the hurricane season here. And <laughs> instead, it was like, you know, calling the leader of North Korea the rocket man and threatening of destruction and annihilation. But what I found very funny, Jess, I don't know if you saw that. I mean, you know, you're talking about he, he praised, uh, he lavished praise on the healthcare system of Nambia. Wow, that's interesting. Dur dur during, during his speech. But there is a, a little pr problem. I've, I've never heard of Nambia. There is no such country. There's Namibia. <laughs> he invented. He invented a country. He, he invented a country. And he said that Nambias, I thought when he was talking about this, I, I thought he was talking about a, a country that existed in Hollywood, you know, that like uh, the... Uh, oh, in a Disney movie. In a Disney movie. Yeah, yeah. And he said Nambias' health system is increasingly self-sufficient. 
Well, let me and just. And he uh, mentioned it not once, but twice no. during the session attended by leaders of several nations, including Ghana, Namibia, right, and Uganda. Yeah, this was a this was a speech that he had with African leaders. I did hear that Jamal praising the healthcare system of a country that doesn't exist. That's bad enough. If he was speaking about Uganda or Namibia, he, he, he would have never said something like that because both those countries' healthcare infrastructure is really struggling right now. But perhaps the most insulting thing for Donald Trump to say in front of African leaders at the United Nations, he's trying to crack a joke and he says, basically, it's like a, it, it was just so uh, painful to hear him say this. He goes, Africa is such a great place. All my friends go there and they're trying to make a lot of money off of uh, there. They're bringing a lot of money there and trying to make a lot of money. And he, he's saying that to African leaders as if he doesn't know the historical painful history of European colonialism, of, uh, slave, of the history of the slave trade, the history of the European and, and Western nations coming into Africa and raping countries and, and, and people, literally and figuratively, of their natural resources. And he had the audacity to stand up in front of these African leaders and say, hey, what a great place. My friends who have a lot of money are trying to make a lot of money in Africa. And uh, this is the direct quote, what, uh, what he said. He said, Africa has tremendous business potential. I have so many friends going to, con- to your countries trying to get rich. <laughs> I, I congratulate you. They're spending a lot of money. So I don't know if they're trying to get rich or spending a lot of money no, or they want to get rich. suck up all your resources. But, uh, but what an insulting thing to say. Exactly. It's, I, I mean, it, it reflects a kind of ahistorical uh, sense of the world, of the politics, of the region, that I think most fourth or fifth graders would have better knowledge of African, uh, the African colonial experience uh, in the past and currently. I mean, you know, Africa is still struggling with its past and current colonial uh, engagements from lots of different places. And, you know, for, for Donald Trump to get up there and say that as if it's a compliment to say that all of his rich buddies are spending money in Africa. I mean, wh- what, what could be more disrespectful? What could reflect more ignorance about the history of Africa than that? But and aside, uh, of course, from his threat uh, you know, to uh, North Korea, he wants to basically revisit the whole Iran agreement, renegotiate it. I mean, this is something but that was considered a victory for the United States, the EU, for the Iran, world. the entire world that uh, basically they averted uh, a nuclear disaster or a war or something of this sort. He goes in front of everyone. I mean, he thinks this is, Donald Trump has this complex, in my opinion. He wants to negate everything that was achieved by his predecessor, Barack Obama. Exactly. So whether it's the healthcare system, you know, Obamacare, uh, you know, programs for the LGBT community, and, DACA. Uh, DACA and now Iran. And this is something that we kind of like the uh, the United States uh, and the European Union 
uh, worked very hard on and reached an agreement. And then he goes in front of everyone and say, well, you know, we have to revisit this. But let's, let's talk about how ridiculous that is, but Jamal. Uh, it is so ridiculous that there was an immediate response from the EU. So a response came from the EU just, oh, yeah. just yesterday and said, no, we're not going there. You know, I mean, this was actually a response from the EU. Be, uh, the EU, they worked very hard also on this, and they said, uh, you know, it's a done deal. We, we've reached an agreement, and, of course, there was a response from the Iranian president, president right. who went there and, and uh, you know, in, in a way mocked what uh, President But, but he did said. it in a very classy way. But let's just look at the irony of this, Jamal. You have an agreement with, a, with, a, with Iran that was negotiated not only with the United States, but with the EU, as you say. And I might add, you know, Russia was involved in those negotiations. Every single, uh, every single 60 or 90 days, I'm not sure which, has to be recertified as to whether or not Iran is complying with the agreement. Since Donald Trump has been in, in, in power, he's had to recertify at least two times that they've complied with the agreement. Now, the whole point of the agreement from the United States standpoint, Jamal, was to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. That's what right. is the United States trying to do with North Korea, trying to negotiate you know, them not developing a nuclear weapon? So they want to kill the deal with Iran, which if they do that, the first thing Iran is going to do, Jamal, is go back to creating a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. So why would – what do you think – Kim Jong-un is saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to negotiate a deal with Donald Trump when he reneges on all these deals. I mean, there's so many things that are wrong. But I think he's taking his talking points from Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, you know, when I said that there was he was universally condemned and I said except one, there was one person, one world leader who stood shoulder to shoulder with Donald Trump. Every single world leader condemned his speech except one. Let me guess. Who do you think it is, Jamal? Benjamin Netanyahu. Absolutely. And, and this is a very good segue because I want to also talk about Benjamin Netanyahu's absurd. I mean, since we are in the world of absurdity, this is another absurd speech delivered at the UN. But you're right. Benjamin Netanyahu said this was like the best or I, I, I'm paraphrasing right here. And this was a brave speech by any world leader that who stood in front of the General Assembly ever. So, so but let me let me just finish. We'll we'll get to sure. Netanyahu. I did a little analysis, Jamal, because he says buzzwords. You know, it, it, Donald Trump has tells, and he uses buzzwords, little words that kind of signal things. So he used the word sovereign, or sovereignty. How many times? I think twenty-two or twenty-three times. Right. If you look back in the history of people who uh, world leaders who gave speeches. There's a certain category of world leader that happens to use that word too. And it's people like Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, Robert Mugabe, Benjamin Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it seems like that word about sovereignty is typically used by rogue states, thugs, and, and people who are basically 
the uh, disrespectables, if you will, around the world. It's just so interesting to me that Donald Trump has placed himself and is trying to place the United States along that word. You know, the United Nations isn't about sovereignty, Jamal. It's about the nations of the world coming together in a space to try to iron out difficulties and problems before they threaten the planet. And here's Donald Trump doing his America First thing. I I thought that the speech was just extraordinary in that regard. You're absolutely right. But anyway, shifting to to Benjamin Netanyahu. Who used that that word a lot too, by the way. He uses that word, and he's known for bringing these absurd props to his appearances at the (laughs) UN, if you remember the uh, drawing of, of the, the bomb. New, of the bomb, you know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always like, I actually put my timer on to watch his uh, speech on C-SPAN to see if he was going to bring right. a new gimmick. And now he thinks, this time he thinks really that he's a funny guy. I mean, does anyone find him funny? So, so Maybe Donald Trump. So he, he goes there, you know, and... Uh, at the beginning of, 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 of his speech, if you watched, if anyone who, of our listeners who watch his speech, he starts describing his trips around the world. Like, I'm this great world leader. I've been to every country around the world. And then he concludes, you know, his, uh, uh, I would say, his intro uh, by saying, I haven't yet visited Antarctica, but one day, And I'm here quoting, I hope to go there. I want to go there, too, because I heard that penguins are also enthusiastic supporters of Israel. What a stupid thing. It's it's a really stupid thing. It's a stupid thing. So, you know, he he, he is like trying to connect penguins, you know, like. um, Racist uh, penguins? Well, (laughs) (laughs) penguins are black and white, right? Uh. And so he he continues. He says, now you laugh, but penguins have no difficulty recognizing that some things are black and white, are right and wrong. And unfortunately, when it comes to the U.N. decisions about Israel, that simple recognition is too often absent. So that that was his analogy. Yeah, he's like. You know, actually, they something do, they do see Israel correctly. Told, uh, in exactly. black and white. <laughs> yeah, they so, actually do. So, so that jo- joke bombs. I, I didn't see anyone laughing at that joke. Then he continues. He has another thing. He says, you know, something he goes on talking about uh, criticizing UNESCO for declaring the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron a Palestinian world heritage site. And recommending the audience read the Bible. So he is now recommending to the audience to read the Bible. And he said, I highly recommend it. I hear it even got four and a half out of five stars on Amazon. And it's a great read. I read it every week. He's delusional, Jamal. I don't know what to tell you. So, so you know, he, you know so totally, it was totally bizarre. You know, penguins support Israel. Read the Bible. Uh, penguins have enough difficulty recognizing something are black and white. Another stupid comment. And it was like just nonsense and, and gibberish. And like I said, he actually believes that he's a funny guy. And he's not. No, he's not a funny guy. And he shouldn't be laughing because his wife is being in- indicted for corruption. There's more than a 50-50 chance that he himself will be indicted by for corruption by, you know, you know, the lead prosecutors in, in, you know, the lead Israeli prosecutors. But I think, you know, 
when when you have universal condemnation of of a speech which which is universally people thought world leaders thought that Donald Trump's speech was was just uh you know beyond the pale for a world leader disrespectful ignorant uh, bellicose whatever and only one leader stands shoulder to shoulder with you and that leader is Benjamin Netanyahu of 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 Israel then that should really help people understand the place of Israel in the larger world political context. Because the rhetoric that Donald Trump uses, the colonial language, the isolation language, the bellicose language, this kind of ignorance and kind of, you know, celebration of colonialism and colonial projects, I guess it's not too surprising that Benjamin Netanyahu would would agree with Donald Trump, who he himself is leader of a country that's engaging in one of the largest modern colonial projects in Palestine right now. So I'm hoping that our listeners see that this kinship, or what is it, a bromance, I guess, between Netanyahu and Trump, this this little bromance, is because, you know, they, they share similar kinds of views of the world. And if, if you think that Donald Trump's views are really problematic in some significant way about the world, you need to check yourself in terms of your view of Israel because, you know, they're, they go hand in hand. Uh, you're absolutely right. And then we can't also leave this discussion before we switch topics. Is this uh, Abu Mazen's speech? Yeah. So also, How painful was it? So then you also have uh, Mahmoud Abbas's speech, which also I... Uh, I watched, uh, but I have to say, I mean, content-wise, this was the best speech that he ever delivered at the United Nations General Assembly. That's not saying much, though. And possibly, possibly the best speech ever in content, in content, in 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 uh, you know what he was trying to de- to convey to the to the international compu- community, except that it's twenty years late. <laughs> That's the problem. Right. My problem with that, and I and I'll tell you, and you know, and we have some quotes. Maybe even I can pull a soundbite uh, if possible. But he talked for the first time. I mean, uh, you know, of course, he starts his speech that you know. It's been more than 20 years since Oslo, no progress, increase in settlements, uh, what's happening in East Jerusalem to uh, the Palestinians in East East Jerusalem, and so forth, including that now Netanyahu is avoiding sitting uh, on the table, you know, because before they used to say, Abbas didn't want to meet with Netanyahu, but in fact, Netanyahu is avoiding him. But he also talks about, for the first time ever, Ethnic cleansing. Wow. You know, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, in, in, in including um, uh, East Jerusalem. Wow. He talks about apartheid. Abu Mazen? Abu Mazen says the A word. He said the A word. Wow. You know, he was Mr. Nice Guy for the past two Tw- decades. A- as land is now being stolen. Now he's saying, now this, uh, these are the conditions we have. And last but not least, he talks about a one state... Equal equal rights no way. to yeah everyone he says basically but he he put it he puts it in this uh, context which uh, I think that that's the crux of the problem to begin with the whole thing about Oslo this is the problem and the whole uh, idea of the two state that 
or one virtual state for the Palestinians. But he actually he actually says, listen, okay, so if you were not we're not going to have the two states and you know the settlers are expanding they're all over the place and they are taking over the land then maybe you know we should just start talking about uh, equal rights and start talking about you know equal rights for palestinians for jews for christians for muslims this is this is a first i'm this shocked this is this is actually i'm shocked this is a, this is a, a first so he's now putting all these things that Palestinians forever, uh, they've been begging him to utter, to stop this schmoozing. The charade. And this singing Kumbaya with Netanyahu and his predecessors, Olmert, Hood uh, Barak. Rabin. All of, the, all of them. And thinking of this fantasy that Israel was going to withdraw and hand him over the keys to the West Bank and Gaza with nothing in return. And, of course, uh, not maintaining 400 to 600,000 illegal colonials. Oh, and he actually calls the settlers as colonial settlers. No way. Yeah, I've actually uh, printed out the speech and I've underlined a lot of items and all these items are firsts for Mahmoud Abbas. I, I'm, that's amazing. You know, he talks about, of course, the human rights, the refugees. But when he uses these terminologies, you know, you know, he, he said, he said, you know, uh, and I'm trying to find some of his sentences. You know, we look to the Security Council to approve our application for full membership of the state of Palestine to the United Nations. Also, those who support a two-state solution should recognize the other state, the state of Palestine. And then he talks about uh, Mandela, you know, how he talked about, you know, his, the struggle of, of the people of South Africa wouldn't be complete until Palestine basically is free. Uh, he, uh, you know, he says, uh, I call on all the states to end all forms of direct and indirect involvement with and support to the illegal Israeli colonial settlement regime in the land of the occupied state of Palestine in accordance with the United Nations resolutions and with the affirmed positions of the states in this regard and similar to the international community's approach towards the apartheid regime in South Africa. I am speechless. So, I just wish so, he had done it 20 years ago, so like you said. So all these things, you know, you look at it exactly. I mean, I said, I actually read the speech, listened to it live in, in Arabic, read the, the transcript in Arabic, read the transcript in... How did it in, sound in, in Arabic? In, I'm in, curious. In English. How did it sound in Arabic? Yeah, I mean, it was a powerful message. Really? And of course, everyone in the room, they get... Get it uh, simultaneously translated into in, in into their own language or into English, and the message was uh, was very powerful, very clear, and very late. And <laughs> you're right. <laughs> that was the main issue with that. That it is twenty plus years late. Well, because remember. Oslo's promise was to have a state within three years. And when this didn't happen in three years, then these steps should have been taken. 
like talking about the one state, talking about equal rights to everyone, talking about apartheid, criticizing them when they were building the walls and calling it apartheid and all these things. What do you think would have happened had he given this speech 20 years ago, Jamal? That's interesting. I think it would have been... History would have been different, possibly. It would have been different because now he's talking when he has no leverage of whatsoever. In, nope. in fact, all the Arab states don't have any leverage. You know, in the, in, in the past 20 years, I mean, at least we can look back at the past uh, five years. We could look back at the war in Iraq. We could look back, I mean, this is, of course, longer since 2001, and then look back just at what, what's happening in Syria. There's no leverage. In like Iraq now. The, the, the failed whole, so-called Arab Spring. And because of that, he has really no leverage, as and you said. Daesh, ISIS, the whole world, and even the Iran nuclear issue. So all the distraction was not there. The Palestinian problem was front and center of all the issues in the Middle East. Prior to 9-11 and, and that's it was, what yeah. People were saying... Solve that issue and then we'll have peace. Now, if you solve the Palestinian-Israeli, you know, people can argue this. If you solve that issue, well, you, you, you haven't solved what's going on in Syria. You haven't solved what's going on in Iraq. You haven't solved what's going on in Yemen. Look at what's going on even between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. All these issues were non-existent and people would have united behind him. That's a really good point, Jamal. And the other thing is, is that... You know, we know this through unofficial channels that Israel has been engaged in active diplomatic and uh, trade uh, discussions with many of the Gulf states. They have very warm relations, at least diplomatically behind the scenes, with Egypt and with Jordan. So any kind of uh, leverage that uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinians would have had in the past, as you said, it's a really good analysis, is completely gone. The Syria is destroyed. Iraq is destroyed. You, you have no leverage anywhere in North Africa or the larger Middle East, let alone in the Gulf, which is already uh, ready to do deals with the Israelis as we speak, Jamal. It's, it's really quite disturbing. And, but a great speech too late is what? what? What would you call a great speech too late? I don't know. I mean, it's how great can it be if it's 20 years too late? You could argue that it's 70 years too late. You could even argue that it's 50 years too late, depending on what you want to connect it with. But what do they say? Better late than never? Well, it is better late than never, and it is a very clear message. Uh, I'm sure it has uh, resonated at least within the Israeli public and the Palestinian public, at least the Palestinians both in uh, Palestine and in, in the diaspora for the first time they've heard a cohesive message that was absent. Before all the messages that were delivered before they were uh, I would say utopian in a sense like we're just going to hold hands, we're going to sing Kumbaya and then the Israelis are just going to give us our land back. Because we want it. Yeah, just because we <laughs> want it and we have to believe everything that they're saying. Just keep saying peace, peace, peace uh, all over again, and they, are, they were going to deliver. And I haven't, like I said, even during the war on Gaza. Uh, he never said those he, things. He did not say these things. So, so it's, it's really, I say, a very clear message. 
And now it, the, the issue is how, how is that going to be? Well, the audience uh, probably, wouldn't you say that the audience was not the international community nor the Israelis, but really the audience was the, were Palestinians both in Palestine and in the diaspora, right? That's the audience. Well, that's the audience. And, and, and back to the question that we posed at is the, the UN relevant? Is the UN relevant? I mean, I mean, these issues. I think, again, we hear, you know, that there is always that excitement in the United States, in at least in New York, across the globe. All these world leaders, they just keep. Many of them have changed faces. Macron now is the 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 president of France, and so you have a new face. Uh, who would have thought that? Donald Trump would be standing. He, he actually wants to get rid of the UN. He always said it causes a traffic jam in Manhattan, you know, and he wants to get rid of the UN. Now he's speaking right there. You have a new president in Iran, Rouhani, which, by the way, uh, gave a really good speech, gave a speech which we should comment on it. Uh, uh, you know, like uh, on Wednesday, he warned that his country will respond, will respond decisively to any violation of the agreement that trains in its nuclear program and called uh, the United States President Donald Trump's, this is his word, ignorant, absurd, and hateful rhetoric about Iran unfit for the United Nations. Wow. That, that's, uh, that's what Rouhani said. So you have also Rouhani who delivered, I think, a very strong, intelligent uh, speech. But at the end of the day, you have that crazy veto power by five members. Most of the vetoes have been used, by, by the way, by the United States and by Russia. Far, by and far, Russia. by far. And actually Russia during the USSR period. Uh, very few vetoes uh, were uh, issued, you know, by France. Um, UK. The U UK and, and China. But most of these vetoes, especially when trying to enforce something on Israel. Uh, resolution 242, States. 181, all these resolutions, they were vetoed by the United States. That's right. So the question is, we have all this posturing, all these great speeches, all these demands, all this coverage, and then... Nothing. Nothing. Well, here's Nothing comes out well, from the United Nations to help the victim. Here's uh, th Well said, Jamal, and here's what I would say. Get rid of the Security Council. Get rid of the veto power of those five countries and truly make it a democratic world body. I if that were to happen, I think you would see things be very different in terms of the efficiency functionality, and the ability of the world community to bring justice uh, in the world. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO. We're in San Francisco at 89.5 FM. We're going to take a short musical break. There's lots to talk about, Jamal, so stay tuned. We'll be right back.
All right, we are back. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM. We are also broadcasting this live on Facebook Live. Uh, so we welcome our uh, listeners and viewers on uh, Facebook Live. And of course, uh, our listeners in the San Francisco Bay Area on uh, KPOO. I... I I got a lot to talk about, Jamal. There's a lot of topics. I, I wanted to say just a little bit about healthcare and um, the attempt to destroy the, the basically health and welfare of um, the majority of, of people living in the United States, the majority of Americans. Um, this last ditch effort to destroy the Affordable Care Act is truly disgusting in my opinion, immoral, unethical. And one of the leaders of the, you know, Graham uh, bill, you know, it's Lindsey Graham and Cassidy, uh, Senator Cassidy calls himself a physician. He says, you know, it's Dr. Cassidy. Mm -hmm. And yet the pain and suffering that will be brought upon Americans if this bill is actually passed uh, is just astounding in terms of what it does to destroy any semblance of equity in the health care uh, system that we have with the Affordable Care Act. Now, we know that the Affordable Care Act obviously has problems, so on and so forth. But what this bill does, Jamal, is is it's cataclysmic, I would say, in terms of uh, people who have who already have medical conditions, who have pre-existing conditions, who don't have a lot of money, who have children who are sick, who have mental health issues, who have opioid addiction, who have this, who who want prenatal care. I mean, all of these things have the potential to be just swept aside, swept aside, and creating this kind of, if you will, hell of uh, health care absence for, you know, probably 30 or 40, arguably even 50 million Americans. And this has the full blessing of the president of the United States, who promised that he would give health care to every American mm -hmm. at lower cost that would be better health care for everybody. Well, uh, I hope it's going to fail. Uh, this uh, this is what is it? This is the third attempt. No, it's the eighty third attempt. Eighty third attempt, attempt but, but, but to, this year, to, to this year's the third attempt. The third yeah. attempt, and I, I believe actually I believe it's going to fail. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm maybe really not maybe, sure. but but they're going to keep trying. They're going to keep trying. They don't have anything in uh, in return. But I am sure that this thing will basically fail uh, miserably. Because people are not going to remain silent about something like this this important. Yeah, the thing is, though, but uh, the full court press that they're putting on right now um, about how this is going to save the United States healthcare system, the talking points that they're putting forth are so disgusting. Mm -hmm. The other thing that it does, Jamal, which is this of the three attempts to gut the Affordable Care Act, this one not only guts the Affordable Care Act, but it also destroys the Medicaid system. Mm -hmm. It basically drains the Medicaid, and in California we call it Medi-Cal, but it's the Medicaid system. It's insurance for people who have disability. Mm -hmm. It's insurance for children 
who uh, can't afford health care. It's really the safety net. It basically guts the Medicaid system of billions and billions and billions of dollars. It, it mm-hmm. basically destroys it. And that wasn't part of the other repeal attempts of the Affordable Care Act. So this is a triple whammy. It destroys the Affordable Care Act. Right. It federalizes health care so states get to decide what they want to do. And then it uh, basically guts the Medicaid system. So if, if that's the country you want to live in, Republicans, you know, and, and President Trump, uh, Okay, but I, I can tell you unequivocally that that's not what this country wants. Well, you're absolutely right. I'm hopeful. I'm not. Uh, you're not, but <laughs> I'm hopeful that they will fail miserably because they don't have a better solution. And, and, and hopefully it will, the same people who voted against it will vote, will, will, will stand their ground. I don't know, man. So we'll see. But I'm going to switch gears here because we have uh, an additional 15 minutes yeah, or so. Yeah, we have some and breaking news, don't we? Well, it's not just breaking, but it's a con- continuing news building up on what's been going on in the Bay Area to our listeners here and the vicious attacks on academia. Last week, we had Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi right here right. in the studio talking about the vicious attacks that she had been subjected to at San Francisco State University. And this comes all, by the way, in the context that this week, starting this week, I think starting uh, Sunday, Wednesday. No, starting uh, Sunday at Sun- Cal. S- Sunday at Cal, but they released basically the updated. Uh, yeah, I was, what was I was trying to say that on Wednesday, UC Berkeley released an updated list of the speakers for the so-called free speech week. Uh, at, at, at this time, Steve Bannon and Ann Coulter, uh, standard bearers of the far right, are on it. So they've been added. Most of the 17 speakers, including Bannon, a former advisor, of course, to President Trump, and Coulter, a self-described mean-spirited, bigoted conservative, She's self-described. This is, and, and, and I believe her. No, I'm not going to question that she no, is mean and mean-spirited and bigoted. Uh, they have not confirmed to the university that they will show up next week, but the event promoter, Milo Yiannopoulos, said that he will. So this, you're right, this four-day event from this coming Sunday to Wednesday marks the return of Yiannopoulos to UC Berkeley nearly eight months after basically he He was run out of town. He he was run out of town, and now so they're going to have this. But this is the breaking news. Okay, before we get to that breaking news, I really think they should have let him speak, but we'll come back to that later. But what's the real breaking news? So the real breaking news, and I don't know if many of our listeners, at least in the Bay Area, uh, those who go to San Francisco State University and, and Berkeley. And Berkeley. Yeah. This morning, right on campus at uh, both San Francisco State University and UC Berkeley, posters were plastered yeah. all over. Uh, posters appeared on the Muni bus stop, for example, at San Francisco State University. And at the Student Center. And at the Student Center. And all throughout the campus at Cal. Attacking Dr. Uh, Abdelhadi and others and naming, and this was done by Horowitz, 
David Horowitz. David Horowitz. Who, by the way, is coming to Berkeley. Who's coming to Berkeley? And by the way, David Horowitz is scheduled to be one of the speakers at the Berkeley Free Speech uh, Extravaganza. Posters were also put up at Cal, naming I think six different faculty of color, six different faculty uh, who they have uh, identified on this Horowitz poster. I think it said terrorist supporters, you know, stop terrorist supporters at campuses. This is the rhetoric of the posters, the hate speech that's being put up at Cal and at San Francisco State. So they identify certain faculty. They put these posters up. Now, the interesting thing that, that, that I think about this, the chancellor of Cal, a new chancellor, said within 30 minutes of these posters being put up that she ordered the police department and and other personnel at at Cal to tear them down. I haven't heard anything from President Wong about San Francisco State. Yeah, I mean, these posters, of of course, they were discovered first by the students. The fact of the matter that they, whoever put them, and we know uh, who put them, basically the terrorists uh, of David Horowitz and his ilk, uh, coming on on campus, uh, and I call it this is this is uh, this is uh, academic terrorism. Basically, it is trying to instill fear uh, on campus. And they posted; they were able to post these posters uh, at the student union, uh, the uh, Muni bus stop, and they have the poster, you know, of uh, professors and naming students and uh, other supporters. And the, 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 the poster says, terrorist supporters, big headlines, posting pictures, uh, of course, a picture of Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, and the, with the hashtag, uh, stop university support of terrorists. And, and then, you know. A similar one they, at Cal. They, they, they're, they're not afraid to identify themselves, which is the Horowitz, uh, uh, he calls himself Horowitz Freedom Center. But basically, my question is, how were they able, I mean, I mean, in, in this age of where you have cameras all Everywhere. over the pl- place, you have campus police, and you have cameras. Number one, if anything, uh, this is, uh, aside, aside, you know, aside from being hateful, it is akin to putting graffiti, right? It's, Absol- it's, it's, it's the face probably worse than it's the, graffiti. It's defacing the bus stop, you know. So, to, for in my opinion, the culprits here is a lack of providing security and, and a safe environment. I agree with you uh, for the students and the professors uh, from the uh, campus police from the administration, and in this case, also you have Muni involved. I think that's a great point, Jamal. What I cannot wrap my mind around at San Francisco State especially is the lack of the engagement of the administration as well as the campus police to take steps to stop this, and we should call it what it is. It's incitement to violence. Okay, because I believe in the First Amendment. I believe David Horowitz should speak. I believe Ann Coulter should speak. Steve Bannon, Milo Yankopoulos should speak. I believe they should all speak. But, you should speak, but also... But you can't have incitement. That's you, where you, you draw the line. You can't have incitement, and also you cannot threaten and you cannot penalize students 
who demonstrate peacefully. I said peacefully. Right. They can boo. You have the right to boo. You can have the, you have the right to his. I mean, the, the, that's free you know, speech. That's free speech. But as long as you don't go and you know throwing things and what have you, but if they demonstrate also peacefully. You have the right. If you're going to invite someone who, who, who is going to come and uh, incite uh, hate and violence against a certain group or a certain ethnicity, and in this case, they have been targeting Arab and Muslim students and, 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 and professors, you have the, rights, uh, the right also to demonstrate against, Absolutely. against this hate. And so San Francisco State University... And I am being very honest, and I will remain very honest and very hard. They have been doing the opposite. Instead of providing protection and security for their students and their uh, professors like Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, they have been apologetic for apologetic to these terror groups. Right. They have been apologetic in, in saying that, oh, no, 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 the problem is is anti-Semitism, it's not Islamophobia, which we, meaning us and everyone else and in, in the Bay Area, are against anti-Semitism and all kinds of races, but at the same time, they are refusing to acknowledge that there is Islamophobia and anti-Arab and, anti-Arab and hateful people who are violating the rights of the students and 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 the professors and they are not doing anything that's exactly right Jamal. To, I don't to provide any kind of protection or security so I would say shame on the administration and and people should not remain silent about this uh, you know they have to be vocal and this is the latest incident i mean we had a lot of things we wanted to talk about internationally but it seems that every week I and mean, here we are in the most liberal city in the united states which i don't believe every week we have to speak or to say something about it because the administration has failed its students has failed dr rabab abdel hadi and has failed the professors and the academics who support her. Uh, that's so well said, Jamal. And then I just want to ask you this question. Why is San Francisco State Administration silent in the face of these attacks on faculty and students? I mean, the, the travesty historically is you have people in the face of atrocity being silent. People who are silent in the face of horrible things happen go down in history as really being just, you know, they go down into the dustbin of history of awful people. Why is San Francisco State turning a blind eye to Arab Muslim uh, students, to faculty and students on their campus who support these programs? I, I, I'm Scratching my head. And I tell you why. Many reasons. The first reason, they feel that we are the weak community. That's the most important reason. And we have to prove them otherwise. They feel that because you have all the attacks targeting Muslims and Arabs all over the country, and they are on the defensive, they are not 
taking a stand because they feel, well, you know, we might uh, suffer the wrath of the others. Right. Who are in power now? Who are in power. You have now Donald Trump. You have the Muslim ban. You have the Muslim ban. You have all these uh, racist uh, white supremacists around. And and the community has not been vocal enough. And I'm saying that this is something shame on us. Absolutely. Uh, this is a mes- message to the community, to the Arabs, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, their supporters, people of color to go and march to the, to the administration and say, wait a minute, what have you been doing here? You are actually negating a very, uh, I would say, proud history of San Francisco State University against uh, racism. You are helping to foster racism. They're promoting racism, it. And you are promoting it. So that's the number one reason. The number two reason, follow the money. I repeat that time and time again. Follow the money. And I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to name the name of the president of San Francisco State University, but he'll get my message. I'm not going to name the name of the chair of of San Francisco State University of the Department of Ethnic Studies, but he'll get my message that they feel that, oh, we don't want to alienate this group or that group because they write the bigger check. check. So follow the money and you'll see why they are silent. And last but not least, fear cowardly you know they are afraid they don't want to stick their neck they don't want to they don't want to speak what's right stand for justice and like you said they'll go down in the garbage bin of history for being cowards and silent on that uh, formidable uh, note we have come to another close of arab talk well said jamal and of course we're going to be covering this story unfortunately, for for many weeks uh, to come, because this is part of the larger context that we're living in right now, because what's happening at San Francisco State and at Berkeley is just part of the larger movement that is happening in this country, where racist, white supremacist, xenophobic, hateful people feel like they have uh, free reign, open season on communities of color and, and people who are you know, fighting for justice. They feel like it's okay now, given the power structure in Washington, D.C. And uh, we are not going to remain silent. We That's won't. Part. We are not afraid. I'm not. We'll speak the truth. Every week. Your address is right here, Arab Talk on KPO, San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.